Today on Something You Should Know, ever have a nightmare? I'll tell you the reason why. Then we spend a lot of time shooting down other people's ideas, and doing that is actually a bad idea. You know, that person in the meeting where, look, we're just talking about ideas. And, you know, that person raises their hand. They're like, well, to be the devil's advocate here for a second. And they're poking holes. Well, the easiest thing in the world to do is point out why an idea won't work and will probably fail. Anybody can do it, and it takes no talent. Plus, can faking a smile really improve your mood? And the deadliest predator known to man could be buzzing around your head right now. It's the mosquito. The mosquito is responsible for the deaths of half of every human being that's ever lived across our planet. So 52 billion people out of the 108 billion that have existed, which from a historical impact, that's astounding. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. And as with every episode, we have a lot to cover today. So let's jump right in here and talk about nightmares. I'm sure you've probably had a nightmare at some point in your life. Most experts agree that nightmares are the result of anxiety, although seldom are they a literal interpretation of what's bothering you. There are some interesting things about nightmares that you should be aware of. You can't really scream when you're having a nightmare. All of our muscles are paralyzed during sleep except eye muscles and the ones that allow you to breathe. So by the time you're screaming, you're already coming out of your dream. Women have more nightmares than men, and they tend to be more emotionally intense. Nightmares may be trying to help you. A theory that's getting more and more support is that nightmares are trying to help you solve or deal with a problem. There is a difference between nightmares and night terrors. Night terrors occur almost exclusively in children, and you usually cannot wake up a child in the middle of one, and they don't usually have any recollection of them. And fortunately, kids outgrow them. And that is something you should know. When you talk to idea people, people who study where great ideas come from, there's a consensus, I think, that usually great ideas come as a result of generating a lot of ideas, that in an environment or culture that encourages all ideas, is where the good ideas often sprout. And yet we're often very quick to shoot down new ideas. They're a waste of time. Have you ever been in a meeting and heard an idea and quickly thought, oh God, that'll never work. And you really didn't give it much of a chance. Now it's true that great ideas are rare and even great ideas often result from an idea that starts out as not so great. So if you shoot them down too soon, they never have a chance. One arena where this really doesn't happen is improv. If you ever watch improv, somebody shouts out an idea and off it goes. It builds from there. You can't typically in improv say, oh, no, 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 that, that, that's no good. That idea sucks. You can't do that. You've got to run with it and see where it goes. So maybe there's a lesson there. Norm LaViolette is an improv comedian and founder of Improv Asylum, and in addition to being a performer, he helps companies nurture new ideas. He's the author of a book called The Art of Making It Up. 
using the principles of improv to become an unstoppable force. Hey, Norm. Welcome. What's going on, Mike? How are you? Great. So let's start with you explaining what you mean by the art of making it up and how it works into this idea of ideas. Making it up is what I do for a living. It's it's what I do on stage, and you know it's it's said in some way tongue in cheek, right? Because I'm an improvisational, or came up as an improvisational comedian. So I'm working without a script, uh, and so we're making it up. We're making it up as we go. But what we're really doing, though, is we're listening and building together on that stage, and and that's the skill that we're using. So when you see us on stage, yeah, we're you know, are we flying by the seat of our pants? Sure, but. More importantly, we're using a skill set that you know, the audience doesn't really see. And all that is is this idea of I'm listening to you and I'm responding off of your ideas as, as opposed to constantly trying to push my own idea or my own agenda. Well, and, and everybody has seen improv on TV or, or in a theater. And sometimes it's hilariously funny and sometimes it falls flat, real flat. Oh, sure. Absolutely. You know, I mean, that's the high wire act of, of any kind of live performance, but certainly comedy and improvisational comedy, right? You know, you, you, you want that, you, you want that potential for failure, but from a product standpoint and from a show standpoint, you need to deliver far more successes than you do failure, right? Because if, if all you do is fail, then it's going to be, well, what are these people doing? They're terrible. Uh, but, but on the other hand, you're creating. It's art. And so, you know, you have to be okay with the fact that, yes, you're going to fail. Uh, you're taking a risk. And that's okay. Failing isn't crippling. It doesn't mean that you're not funny, that you're not talented, or that you can't do another scene or another show. Great. Now, that's improv. Now, can you take that idea and move it into everyday real people life? How do we use that to create ideas? If you allow yourself to listen first, right? So if anybody asks me what's the number one skill of being able to improvise, it's not the ability to think fast. It's the ability to listen. If I listen first and listen to what you're saying and then respond off of what I hear, then I can build something with you. And that's all it is, right? As opposed to what most people do who are nervous about this stuff, we're, we're, we're self-conscious. We're thinking, oh, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to say the stupid thing. I'm going to be judged. That's not good enough. And as a comedian, we learn to shut that off pretty early. And if you can shut that off and you can just listen and respond to what it is that you're hearing, you can quickly you know, go with the flow, as you said, and, and really move through ideas. All right. So again, let's, let's move this into real life. Uh, so we, we, you talked about listening being kind of the number one important thing. Let's move it on from there. You know, once you get listening down, really, we, we work on this concept in improvisation. And the concept, concept is called yes and. And all it means is yes, I'm listening to you. And I have the courage to build off of your idea and place my idea on top of that. And so if you and I are on stage together... And I know that you're always going to accept my idea and then build on it. And you know I'm always going to accept your idea and build on it. We quickly can build something together that we both own. Now, do we really on stage go, go around saying, yes, and yes, and no, of course not. That would be terrible. But what we're doing is we're building something together that we both own own and that and we're not fighting for it so if you go back to your own you know your your own personal life right how many i think we're so conditioned to say no out of the gate whereas if you can just shift that conversation with your spouse your loved one whomever into a yes and uh mindset which is just as i said yeah i'm truly trying to listen to you even if i don't necessarily agree and i'm trying to build with you as opposed to you know yes but 
which is how most of us talk, especially in the corporate world. Yeah, but you're wrong. Yeah, but my idea is right. And that's what it is. And it's, it's using this yes and philosophy to build, you know, to, to bring people to you as opposed to push them uh, away from you. Yes, but sometimes bad ideas are just bad ideas. And maybe on, on stage, you, you know, that's, the, that's just one of the rules of the game is that there are no bad ideas you've got to build. But in real life, there really are some bad ideas that I, I don't think I want to build on them. I want to say, no, 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 we're going down the wrong road here. Yes, and I think you're right. The key is, when is it the right time to evaluate that, right? So I would argue that in the inception of an idea, it's value neutral, okay? Meaning, an idea, when it's first conceived, right, when it's, when it's wet, shiny, and new, birthed into the world, it's not good or it's bad, or, or bad. It may turn into a good idea. It may turn out to be a terrible idea. In its inception and its birth, though, it's neutral. And the problem with coming at it at the very beginning with no, with yes, but, with pointing out all the reasons why it won't work in the beginning is you have no chance to grow it. Now, at some point, once you explore it, even if when you first hear it, you're like, oh my God, this sounds terrible. Once you explore it, you then may say like, well, look, I don't know if this is going to, you know, if I put it in, let, let's say, business lexicon, right? You know, if I, you, know, you may start to say, well, how is this going to fit with our marketing budget? Is this really where we want to be going in Q3? You're going to have to ask those questions. Is this operational and executable? And yeah, that's when you have to ask the yes, but questions. You have to poke holes in it. You have to challenge it. What I'm saying, though, is if you want to innovate, if all you do is say no to an idea at its inception, it can go nowhere. And so therefore, there is no innovation and you can never determine if something is going to be good or bad. Okay, so yes and is better than yes but, and, and then at some point you, you have to make a determination, uh, do we keep going with this or do we bail? Yeah, and I think a lot of people when they talk about improv in particular, they get caught up in, in, in the, uh, the Pollyanna-ish uh, uh, of it all, which is, you know, the yes and or yes and anything is possible, and not, that's all well and good, it is true. On the other hand, there's an absolute power and necessity to say no. But that comes down the line, especially when you're trying to, so when we get hired by companies, we're usually brought in for like teamwork, communication, ideation, and innovation. And, and, and what we're just trying to show them is, yeah, you'll, you'll still get to say no, you, you'll have to at some point, but now you're going to have a much larger stable of ideas to consider as opposed to if I come to you, if you're my boss, and I say, oh, I got an idea, and you're like, no, that'll never work. Okay, that, that's fine. But, but human nature, what, what are the odds that I'm going to keep coming to you with ideas? Well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to probably stop doing that. I'm going to start feeling embarrassed, self-conscious. And now you're losing out on ideas three, four, and five that you're never going to hear from me just because you're constantly shutting me down. There is a tendency, just as I think back to my own experience in working with and for different organizations, that when you're, at, for example, in a meeting and someone comes up with an idea that one of the purposes of that meeting is to find what's wrong with it. That, that you know, you don't want to go, oh my God, that is such a great idea because then everybody says, you know, you're a yes man and you, you know, you're, you're not a critical thinker. That, that critical thinking to show how smart you are is, <laughs> is to find fault with any idea. I, th I think you're absolutely right. And, and, it, and it so often manifests itself in the, uh, 
like the role of the devil's advocate, you know, that person in the meeting where, look, we're just talking about ideas. We're, we're not anywhere close to the execution phase. We're just talking about ideas. And somebody throws out an idea, and, you know, that person raises their hand. They're like, well, to be the devil's advocate here for a second. And they start, you know, they're, 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 they're sharpshooters. They're, they're poking holes. Uh, and that's what they value themselves as. Well, I can tell you this, Mike. The easiest thing in the world to do is point out why an idea won't work and will probably fail. Anybody can do it, and it takes no talent. And here's the crazy thing. You're probably right. I mean, you know, most ideas won't work, so you'll probably even be right. But what's happening there is all they're doing is they're pointing out why something won't work without offering anything back. So, like, a lot of times when we hold meetings or even we're ideating for the stage or for our theaters, if somebody starts taking that role of the devil's advocate or the sharpshooter, you know, and and they start poking holes in ideas, one of the things that we'll do is we'll, we'll make them put what we call intellectual skin in the game. So, meaning, if you want to come and shoot my idea down or, or point out why it's not going to work, that's fine. But then we'll ask you, well, let's, please give us an idea of your own that you think will work or give us a way that you think this idea could work. And what you find is when people have to put intellectual skin in the game, when they're going to get judged, oh, oh, they start to back off, right? It, because now they know that the tables can be turned. And that's a good way to kind of manage that real negative person or that negative energy uh, in any kind of meeting or really in any situation in your life. And there is that, always that negative person or that negative just energy in the room, like, the, uh, oh, God, every time Bob puts out an idea, it sucks, and, and we're all going to make fun of it, and, and, well, you know, then, like you say, then Bob's not going to come out with many ideas anymore, and, and then maybe you, you lose a gem because you shut him down. Sure, and, and it's a cultural thing, and, and again, I'm not saying that now, okay, we're going we're to do everybody's ideas, we're going to execute everybody's ideas, that's not the point. The point, though, is even if I can bite my tongue for a little while, well, now, even if we say, okay, we've heard a bunch of ideas, we've heard Bob's idea, you know, hey, we're, we're going to go with idea C, we're going to go with Catherine's idea, but at least Bob is going to feel like he was heard and he was a member of the team and he contributed and hopefully he'll either support Catherine's idea or he'll be able to come back with more ideas. And that's if you value a culture uh, that, that, that is trying to innovate, is trying to move ideas forward, and is trying to cut down on the, you know, the, just the toxic environment of, you know, it's, it's, it's my idea against your idea. My idea wins, your idea loses. I get promoted, uh, I fire you, right? I mean, sure, that, that, that can work too. Uh, I'm just saying that there's many ways to create and, and you can create in a more positive environment if, if that's your goal. My guest is Norm LaViolette. He is author of the book, The Art of Making It Up, Using the Principles of Improv to Become an Unstoppable Powerhouse. So, Norm, once you've decided, all right, now we're not going to say yes, but we're going to say yes, and, and we're going to kind of nurture this along until at some point we either fish or cut bait here. How, how does that go? What does that look like? And when do you say, no, this isn't, this isn't going anywhere? Yeah, so what happens is once you, once you say, okay, this is an idea that we're going to pursue, pursue for a little, bit, a little while, right? Well, that's when at some point you do have to start asking those, so those tough questions. Is this working? Uh, you know, how, what is the response? You know, for, for us in comedy, 
we do we do several things, right? We improvise, but we also do written pieces as well. And so once we once we submit written pieces for the stage, that's when we start to edit. That's when we start to say, okay, are, is this really getting our point across? Is the audience responding to this the way that we had hoped they would? You know, in the rehearsal room, that sketch may have been super funny to us, and it's just not working on the stage. And so you start getting those data points to say, all right, is this measuring up to what it is uh, that, that we're trying to accomplish. And then at some point, you know, it either is or it isn't. And it's okay to say, well, we've walked down the way, you know, walked down the path for a little, little while. It didn't work or we're not going to pursue it, but that doesn't mean it's a failure. It just means that we've learned something, either what works or what doesn't along the way. It sounds like this all is a good idea and that it opens up possibilities and it makes everybody feel included. But what's the evidence that this really works, that, that there's a real benefit at the end of the road here? Well, you can, you can look at it in, in many different ways, right? So if you look at it just in, in, in my world, uh, okay, so, you know, I always like to d- describe a show like this, right? If you, if you were to come down to Improv Asylum uh, in Boston or New York, you know, it's a basement theater. You're surrounded by 200 people. They're drunk and they're yelling stuff at you, right? It's, it's, a, it's the definition of a hostile work environment. If that's happening at your workplace, go CHR. For us, that's a Friday. And, and so, well, we have to deliver a product, which is something funny. Uh, we have to deliver in real time. Our feedback loop is incredibly small. We don't get to send out a survey saying, hey, uh, did you think the show was funny? Send it back in three weeks. No, we, we know right away if you think it's funny or not. And so what we're doing is we're delivering and making a product in real time, okay? And what's happening is now you have people that are relying on each other's skill sets to create something very cool. So I may be funny and you may be funny, but here's the deal. I'm way more funny if you're on stage with me because I have your sense of humor, your knowledge, you know, whatever your life experiences are. And so now we create something and hopefully we're good and we make the audience laugh. Sure. But really the bigger thing, and I think especially as it applies to, let's say, the business world or even your personal world, is if you and I work together well and the scene goes really well, well, guess what? We're going we're gonna to look at each other and go, hey, maybe, maybe I want to work with that guy again. Maybe I want to listen. Maybe he listened to what I had to say. He built on some of my ideas. He let me have input onto his ideas. That's really what we're teaching when we go out in the corporate world is this idea that, okay, we're building a culture. You and I may want to work together again. And that is incredibly important, right? If you're trying to build a team, you need teams that want to work together. The converse of that is if you and I go out on stage and I don't listen to anything that you have to say, or every time you put an idea out there, I shoot it down and I get a laugh while I'm doing it because you can definitely get laughs negatively, right? But if I keep doing that to you, you're going to be like, that guy's a dink. I'm not going back out on stage with him, or you'll start trying to do that to me, and the culture breaks down. And so we see it time and time again in how teams either do or don't work well together. If they're trying to support each other, odds are, they look pretty good. If they're trying to tear each other down, odds are some will win and you'll have a lot of losers. One of the big differences between comedy and the real world is, as you just said, the feedback loop is very quick. It either works or it doesn't. It's funny or it's not, and, and then we move on. That's less true elsewhere. Sometimes you don't know until you've spent millions of dollars that this was a terrible idea. And that, that, to me, is where I see a big difference between what you're talking about and the, the staff meeting where we're trying to come up with new ideas, because we won't know right away. 
Yeah, I, I mean, of course. You, 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 when, when you get into that, you know, there, there are millions of dollars at stake, as I like to say, like that's in the real world. And so what, what we're doing now is we're not necessarily saying, okay, all ideas are great and pursue them all. What we're saying is here's the skill set to learn how to create together. Here's the skill set of you and I trying to listen and build something together, right? So that's, that's what we're going for when we teach this idea of improv. And then you'll apply it to your world. You're, of course, you have to have all the other metrics within your industry and your life that says, well, you know, this is what we consider, you know, a practical uh, idea for the tech industry or the financial industry or whatever. We're not, we're not industry experts like that. But what we are experts on is people building something together at its foundational points, right? That's, that's really what it is that we talk about. And then, yes, of course, as you build something, then you have to apply all the other things that you know, have made you successful to be able to say, okay, we've explored this for a little while. I don't think it's the right way to go. Well, then you have that conversation, but at least you may have gotten some information or, or you, you have a team that wants to work together because of it. So quickly, uh, to wrap up here, what is that skill set? Outline that, the, the basic one, two, threes of that skill set that people can take away. First one is uh, active listening, the, 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 the ability to listen to somebody else, right? And not just you know, nod your head, uh uh-huh, and wait to talk. There's a difference between listening or waiting for your turn to speak. Uh, And I think in the corporate world, a lot of people spend a lot of their time waiting for their turn to speak. So, you know, first and foremost, especially as a leader, it's it's really trying to be able to listen and understand what is being said, even if you don't agree with it. I'm not saying you have to agree with it, but you have to understand. That second part is allowing yourself this idea for a little while of yes and. And all that means, and it's a tool, right? I'm not saying we spend all day with it. You know, in our next meeting, if we're having trouble or we're not getting a breakthrough on an idea, we advise use yes and as a tool. You can use it for 15 minutes or 30 minutes in your next meeting, right? That, that's all it is. Like, hey, let's, let's try this technique for 30 minutes. Uh, and then after that, we'll go back to all the other techniques that we use uh, in our organization. You know, accusations, finger pointing, infighting, I don't know, however you do it. But, but that's a tool that we use. And then at least we can see if maybe some new ideas become surfaced. And then the final thing on that after the yes and idea is allowing yourself the ability to fail. But like you said, you've got to fail early and fast as opposed to you know, failing after you've committed $10 million uh, to it. And, and say, look, if you can fail early and fast, you can quickly kind of cycle through a lot of different ideas. Because when you cycle through a lot of ideas, that's when you're likely to come up with a great idea. Norm LaViolette has been my guest. He is an improv comedian, founder of Improv Asylum in Boston, and he's author of a book called The Art of Making It Up, Using the Principles of Improv to Become an Unstoppable Force. Thanks for being here, Norm. Yeah, thanks, Mike. This has been, uh, this has been awesome. It's been a pleasure to uh, be on your show, and uh, reach out to me anytime if, anytime if you want to talk improv. You could probably win a bar bet with this question. What is the deadliest predator known to man? And by deadliest, I mean what animal has killed more people than any other? There's a good chance there is one of these creatures not far from you right now. It is the mosquito. While we have, for the most part in this country, relegated the mosquito to the category of pest, over time and throughout the world, the mosquito has wreaked havoc and in fact has changed history in significant ways. 
Tim Weingard is a professor of history and political science at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction, and he's author of the book The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. Hi, Tim. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So this summertime and springtime pest that we hear buzzing around our ears and occasionally bites us and it itches, what kind of horrible things has this, this creature done? The mosquito is responsible for the deaths of half of every human being uh, that's ever lived across our planet. So it's in the ballpark of, you know, 52 billion people out of the 108 billion that have existed, and these are estimates, but across our human existence. And obviously the mosquito by itself, you know, untethered from a pathogen is harmless. And that's important to note is that the mosquito doesn't directly harm anybody. It's it's the pathogens and the diseases that she transmits that cause such devastation and death. Wait, you you said that mosquitoes are responsible for half the deaths in world history. There's numerous you know academic papers and articles that suggest that that's the estimate that it's half of all human beings that have ever lived. Which, from a historical impact, that is astounding. Wow, that is astounding. And as you said, it's not the mosquito itself, it's the... It, and so why is it such an efficient killer and carrier of all these diseases? Well, the diseases don't harm the, the mosquito at all, um, but they use the mosquito to, for transport and, and to continue the, the cyclical contagion of their own species. Um, so for the malaria parasite, for example, it's an extremely sophisticated creature and its reproduction, it has numerous stages of reproduction and some of the stages occur with inside the mosquito and then other stages of malaria reproduction occur inside a host, whether that be, in this case, humans or other animals uh, that have malaria um, strains. So the, the, the malaria parasite needs both the mosquito and essentially a zoological Noah's Ark of, of other animal safe houses to continue its survival and its procreation, which is why it's so difficult to, to combat and why it still persists as, you know, such a lethal, lethal disease to humans. is It's just such a sophisticated creature, and it's not a virus. So vaccines in the traditional sense for viruses like smallpox, for example, we eradicated smallpox from the face of the planet. The last case was in 1977. So it's not a virus. So traditional vaccines, it don't work. So when we say that mosquitoes have killed half the people that, that have ever lived on this planet, it's because they have been carrying and distributing malaria amongst, amongst the population primarily. Right, among other diseases. Now, yellow fever before it's a, a virus, so there's a vaccine developed in the 1930s. But prior to the, the vaccine of the virus class that the mosquito transmits, which includes Zika and West Nile and dengue and chikungunya, yellow fever was also a, a prevalent killer, especially in the colonial tropics of the Americas. So the mosquito is indirectly responsible for, for, for these, you know, death statistics. Um, but if you take away the mosquito, uh, you don't have these pathogens being able to be transmitted to. They use the mosquito as transport. So it's, 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 a, <laughs> it's a symbiotic relationship for the pathogens, not necessarily for the mosquito, because it does no harm to the mosquito itself. And the mosquito bites animals and people because why? 
Uh, only females bite. Um, the female needs blood from humans or other animals to help grow and mature her eggs. It, it's very simple. She uses the the protein to um, help grow and mature her eggs, and, and when she bites, she immediately starts excreting the water from our blood to, to lessen the weight, uh, obviously because she's taking a, a blood meal that's uh, larger weight-wise than her own body. So it's actually quite an amazing uh, feeding uh, system and, and ritual. Does the mosquito have a purpose, a function? Would the world be fine without them, or are, are they here for a reason other than to just be mosquitoes and do what mosquitoes do? That's a tricky question, and, and you know, we, we don't know 100%, obviously. They don't aerate the soil like other insects. Um, they don't ingest waste, for example, like other insects. And the male's world, only females bite, but the male's world essentially revolves around uh, nectar and sex. Uh, so the males get off easy in this, in this species. Um, but the males, because they drink nectar, they do pollinate plants and flowers. Now, not to the extent by comparison of, of bees, for example. And we all know what's happening to the bee population, and that's certainly uh, a concern uh, globally with the, the reduction of, of, of bees. Um, so if you took away mosquitoes, hypothetically, there would be certain plants and flowers that would suffer the consequences of that from not being pollinated by, by mosquitoes. Um, and we don't think that um, they're an indispensable food source for other animals. Of other animals, obviously, uh, bats eat mosquitoes or some fish eat their, their floating eggs and their, their, their larvae that you know, float on the water. Um, but the, we don't know at the end of the day, and to use the Star Wars vernacular, there's a balance to the force. And if we disturb the balance to the force, we don't know what those consequences could be. There seems to have been a lot of effort in education, you know, remove standing water, so much effort towards getting rid of mosquitoes uh, with limited results. Why are they so hard to eradicate? Well, I think one is there's just so many of them. There's anywhere from 100 to 110 trillion mosquitoes that inhabit nearly every inch of the globe. Um, I think like any other creature, including ourselves, and this is why I, I kind of frame the book as a war almost between humans and mosquitoes, is that they want to survive and procreate. That's what they're hardwired to do, just as, just as we are as, as an animal. So they're able to adapt fairly quickly to new surroundings are also the best weapons we can throw at them to, to circumvent, essentially, our, our, our weapons against mosquitoes. And that, that holds true for the malaria parasite as well, whether it be, you know, the success, uh, succession of drugs, new frontline drugs that come out, the malaria parasite adapts very quickly to, to circumvent these drugs and essentially shrug these drugs off, which, which makes it extremely difficult to, to tackle. And the mosquito story that's the most poignant or that people can maybe identify with the most is DDT. Um, and we all know that DDT has harmful effects to other animals, including humans, as Joni Mitchell sang in her, her song, Big Yellow Taxi. And Rachel Carson certainly made the world aware with her book, Silent Spring, in 1962. But as a mosquito killer, <laughs> for its first decade of use, uh, give or take, DDT was a remarkable mosquito killer. 
um, and it reduced, it dramatically reduced the rates of mosquito-borne disease. But even before Rachel Carson published Silent Spring, uh, it was very quickly understood that there was mosquito pockets across the world that were already resistant to DDT and it no longer worked anymore. So it's a uh, it's been a war since, you know, the dawn of, of, of humanity against our, our paramount killer. So what kind of progress is being made in the, the fight against malaria and, and its carrier, the mosquito? You know, science progresses and we try to match the mosquito. And with CRISPR in the gene editing technology that has, you know, made the front page headlines since it was unveiled in, in 2012, there is a hope there. And the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is funding numerous projects on malaria vaccines and CRISPR research, among other institutions, whether that be the World Health Organization or the CDC. So we are continually trying to develop better frontline weapons to deal with not just the mosquito, but also, and more importantly, the diseases that the mosquito transmits. Talk about some of the the things the mosquitoes have done in history that uh, people probably aren't aware of the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Surrounding Rome is something called the Pontine Marshes. Um, historically, the Pontine Marshes were a, a malarial hotbed and just, you know, teeming with malarious mosquitoes. So when Rome is, is consolidating itself and in, in projecting its power, when outside invaders, uh, Hannibal, the Carthaginians, um, and the, the, the Visigoths, the Huns, the Vandals, none of them actually take or hold Rome for any extended period of time. is just cut to shreds by the mosquitoes of the Pontine Marshes. So it essentially, these marshes acted, the malarious marshes acted as a, as a shield safeguarding uh, Rome. But eventually, um, the endemic malaria that's just pervasive across not just the Pontine Marshes in Rome, but other parts of Italy, it starts to sap the strength uh, economically, um, militarily of, of the Roman Empire. So it's kind of a double-edged, it's this Faustian pact, if you will. It's a double-edged sword, these Pontine Marshes. They both help the Roman Empire at the beginning, but ultimately help in the collapse of the Roman Empire uh, as well. The American Revolution um, <laughs> was partly aided by in, uh, malarious mosquitoes. So uh, originally the, the main strategy or British strategy was a northern strategy, but in the final few years of the war, um, General Clinton, he shifts the main grand strategy of the British from the northern colonies to the southern colonies where malaria reigns. And so these British soldiers coming from northern England, coming from Scotland, uh, they weren't acclimated to American malaria or what in history they use the term seasoned to malaria. So he's zigzagging across the Carolinas uh, trying to escape malaria, and his correspondence absolutely alludes to this. And he's ordered to hole up in Yorktown uh, with his forces against his own better judgment by General Clinton, his superior. And the Americans and French lay siege to Yorktown, and in Cornwallis's correspondence, he, he clearly states that uh, he surrenders because uh, he only has 35, 37 percent of his troops uh, able to, you know, stand to post, uh, with the, the vast remainder having either been killed or being incapacitated at the time by malaria. So, in a way, the mosquito is a, is a founding mother of the United States. Is anyone making a dent in the problem? Is there any winning in the battle? 
we are seeing a reduction in malaria cases and malaria deaths in the last, you know, 10, 20 years, which is a very good thing. So we're seeing the, the death rates consistently decrease from malaria, which is the paramount killer. But at the same time, what we're seeing is the emergence or reemergence of other mosquito-borne diseases, um, and, and they're not comparatively a pro, as prolific of killers as malaria, but, for example, we're seeing West Nile, uh, Zika, um, and dengue is making a big comeback, for example, uh, and we even are seeing some sporadic and isolated uh, domestic transference of dengue in the southern United States. So, What is that? Kind of, it's a virus. Breakbone fever is, is the nickname. Um, it's a virus again, and it's essentially, they call it a cousin of yellow fever, but far, far less lethal than yellow fever. But still, it's agonizing and excruciating pain in your joints and muscles and fever and rashes. And it's not something you, you obviously, that you would want to contract. And it can lead to, um, to, to death. It's just not in the same class as, as killers of humans as malaria and yellow fever was. Is this, is this a thing that, that governments and, and foundations are going to have to fix? Does, does you know, spraying mosquitoes in my backyard help? I mean, what's the, what's the takeaway from all of this? Well, I, I think because mosquitoes are a universal concern, it, it requires a, a global or universal uh, solution. And I think definitely, as I said, with you know various governmental organizations, national organizations, foundations such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the vast amount of research being funded and conducted all over the world in laboratories and in the field against mosquitoes and mosquito-borne diseases, I think with the rise of CRISPR, um, and, and other, there's other avenues too, but, but with CRISPR specifically is that, you know, the future perhaps is hopeful where we can CRISPR mosquitoes to alter their, their genome and DNA um, to make them harmless. So essentially we make the mosquito incapable of vectoring the diseases, thereby bringing down the disease itself, but not necessarily harming or extincting the mosquito species itself, and thereby essentially keeping the alignment to, to the balance of the force to, to which I alluded to earlier. I remember hearing when, when there was a big mosquito problem, I guess it was in California, where they were trying to release sterile mosquitoes to mate with the other mosquitoes. Uh, d does that kind of effort help, or is that more of a Band-Aid thing? Well, no, it would certainly help. And as I said, not all mosquito species transmit disease. That's the other avenue with, with the CRISPR research is you CRISPR, CRISPR mosquitoes and release them into the wild, and their offspring will be only male, infertile, or stillborn, and therefore you could potentially extinct that species of mosquito. What's the lifespan of a mosquito? Oh, it varies depending on the species of mosquito, and because they're cold-blooded, they're temperature-sensitive too, so it, it depends on the outside temperature. It depends on a lot of factors, but generally in, in more temperate zones, it, it's kind of a week or two. Uh, they can live longer, so not a, a long lifespan, but, but certainly long enough. Yeah, that, because in that week or two, they, they mature, mate, have babies, and here we go again. 
Right, and can have more than one birthing of eggs in that lifespan as well. So depending on the species, again, it depends on how many eggs they lay, but generally, you know, I say about 200 eggs in one birthing in a canoe um, of eggs and floating on the water. Um, so, yeah, it's very temperature-dependent, but also species-dependent as well. But generally, yeah, I'll say about a week or two on average is how long they live. Well, it is strange to think that that little pest buzzing around your head at the picnic, it, it, its ancestors helped change human history, world history. It, 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 it's, it's mind-boggling. Tim Weingart has been my guest. He's a professor of history and political science at Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction, and he is author of the book The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. And there's a link to his book in the show notes. Thank you, Tim. All right, well, thank you very much. You've probably heard the advice that forcing yourself to smile will improve your mood. It can help, but it has to be a real smile. Faking a smile can actually make matters worse. A study from Michigan State University found that customer service workers who fake a smile throughout their day actually wind up in a worse mood and may be withdrawn and less productive. The fake smile effect was stronger for women than men. Smiling can improve your mood, but you have to mean it. If you don't feel like smiling, instead try to conjure up pleasant or funny thoughts. Most of us do have the ability to trigger a genuine smile, and when we do, we tend to experience a slight surge of feel-better endorphins. And that is something you should know. If you like this podcast... I bet your friends would too. Please share it with them. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.